0: We're anyway. on. <laughs>
1: Accessing Historical Database Year 2020 The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open-source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign The tech giants tried to stop sobbing tech. They can't.
0: Woo! Bringing you the absolute best between your ears in professional podcasting, baby. It is the Golden Stallion, the man of tomorrow, SovZoo, the rated R radio star, ready to get it all on this week. We, as usual, have a lot to get into, but you know, I want to open this baby up. No, <laughs> well, all right, maybe a little later. We're going to see if we talk anything about the, uh, release of the iPhone 12 and most recent Apple event. Um, I don't know how much you want to hear me talk about Apple, but Hey, we'll see what happens. Uh, but you know, I do want to open this up with actually some, uh, some good news, I'm not kidding. No, I, I love this. This is fucking great. Uh, talk about, you know, really hardware that does it right. Now being joined with the software that does it right. In my opinion, in many, many ways. Um, Ubuntu 2010 has uh what is it? Groovy gorilla. Is that the name of it? I love that. <laughs> uh, that has uh, finally released just over the past few days. Um, all of the flavors are available you know, uh, whether if you're into, you know, Ubuntu mate, or if you prefer Kubuntu, you know, or, or if you want to use crossface, whatever, I always wondered, and I mean, I've always pronounced it Zubuntu, but yeah, we'll go with Zubuntu. I mean, admittedly, in fact, I I know I I made this statement in the telegram group, um, and partly this came from me testing out what I'm about to talk about here. Uh, but (laughs) I don't know why. I, I mean, th- there is practically no point to, well, we, we could get into a whole side, side subject on this. XFCE, of course, you know, the really low end, uh, or, or as as we often call crossface, uh, the, <laughs> the, the really, it's not low end. I mean, look, Zubuntu 2010 is effectively as complete a package as your regular GNOME-based uh, full-on Ubuntu, right? And that's been true for every version. It's not just true 2010, of course. Um, I mean, Linux users, you already know everything I'm talking about here. But here's the thing is that because it is, you know, basically the full fat version, I, but it can run on such, shall we say, lesser hardware. You know, it's not as it's nowhere near the amount of resource hog that any other desktop environment, even though I know, like, I mean, there's been LXD there, there there've been other ones that have tried to, you know, really supplant or even do a better job than XFCE, but okay. So if we can have computers secure, stable, modern, able to do all the things that you expect a computer to do, and it can run on far less resources than say even gnome or whatever, uh, why, why isn't that the standard? Like why, why isn't that what we're using? It just blows my mind. (laughs) There's just, there's really, there is no good reason why every desktop shouldn't effectively be running XFCE or, or, you know, some other, you know, low resource desktop environment. It just doesn't make sense. But regardless, I digress. Uh, you know, sometimes the hardware comes to match the software. And this is something, I mean, I, I really think that this is, and I know we use the word game changing a lot here, sometimes in a punny way. And, uh, there might, it might be kind of punny in this sense, but I, I genuinely think this is game changing. Um, Ubuntu 2010. All right. Let me preface a little bit more Ubuntu 2010. Now I have recommended against updating to Ubuntu 2010 on the show, not because there's anything wrong with Ubuntu 2010, but because Ubuntu 2004 which is, uh, an LTS release. Okay. Which means that it's, it's going to get long-term security updates and support is not only, uh, and, and it gets that for five years as to where your average update. Okay. Like say 2010 for Ubuntu, uh, generally gets, you know, six months or so up, up until like the next big release comes up, but then you have LTS for, you know, for enterprise spaces and people who just need that, you know, that stability in that consistent workspace or that consistent environment. Um, The beauty of 2004 is not just that it's an LTS release, but it's an extended LTS release, meaning that it's going to get patches and updates for 10 years. So until like 2030, 2004 is, is going to, you know, is, is going to keep getting uh, updated and it'll be a nice stable environment that you can just, that you can deal with. I mean, 10 years to count on security updates, I mean, that's a fucking dream in, in the computing space, whether it's a smartphone, desktop environment, whatever. Um, so, but that, again, that's the reason I've said, I've said, stick with 2004, uh, for the consistency of it and, you know, just overall usability. And again, the continual updates, if you, you know, never want to bother really, uh, you know, changing your, changing your environment or, you know, getting into any of the other changes that Ubuntu regularly does, you know, with every release that comes out about every six months, which I, I don't begrudge Ubuntu for doing that because again, they do it right. They offer you an option that is long-term stable, right? And so that that's the right way to do business. That's the right way, in my opinion, to do a distro. And of course, a lot of the rest of the world feels that way. And that's why there's so many distros, not just based off of Debian, which of course, Ubuntu is based off itself, but based off of Ubuntu itself. Right. So anyway, there's nothing wrong with going to 2010. Just understand that, you know, you're losing that, that long-term stable environment. Okay. Uh, It's not like you're going into an, you know, instable or not stable environment, but you know, there's a difference there. So anyway, but 2010, and I, I gotta tell you, I really wish this was true for 2004. Maybe they can somehow backwards, uh, or, you know, do like a retro patching to, to make this. So, um, but 2010 can, it works full fat, right? It's just, all you have to do is install it. There's no trickery like we used to have to do with Ubuntu mate. Uh, it works on the raspberry PI. Now it works specifically on the models that have at least four gigabytes of RAM which the raspberry PI four and what is it, The four plus and whatever. I mean, that, that has that, you can even get eight gig of Ram on that. Um, now grant you, you know, when you get into the slightly higher end models with the raspberry PI, yes. Okay. It doesn't just cost $35. And of course it never exactly just cost $35 because you always needed, you know, whatever you had to put an SD card for a hard drive. Uh, you need a power supply, whatever. Okay. So it was never, you know, just 35 bucks, but then also it's nowhere near $200 either. Okay. So I think, I mean, I love the Raspberry Pi when the Raspberry Pi four came out and, you know, they were going full on saying, no, this is a desktop replacement computer. It can do dual monitors, can do 4k, can do all this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I mean, fantastic. Uh, I'm a huge supporter of that. Uh, the last, I mean, that eliminates a lot of barriers to entry for people to use what, you know, let's, let's admit it. This is, you know, a really solid unified, uh, uh, hardware platform for one, which allows for easier development. I mean, I like, I don't want a monoculture of anything. Okay. But I also like having the option of a very popular standard of some kind. I mean, and, and a lot of people do, obviously this is why, even though in my opinion, this is no longer true, um, this is why, you know, iPhones, I think, have been or are so supported by, you know, aftermarket third parties, uh, you know, and so on, because it is like this standard of of design. You know, yeah, it gets refreshed, on, you know, once, sometimes maybe twice a year, um, but there is a standard and it's not a million different designs like you have in, in Android, which is very fragmented with Android, of course, that, that sort of issues being resolved ultimately, I think, um, and especially considering that, you know, now, and, and we've talked about this in recent episodes, now that Android is concentrating harder on, you know, being more of a, you know, as far as the major updates for Android being more developer and security focused and not so much about adding in a, you know, but ton of new features, which I think is great. But I mean, now Apple, and, and we should probably talk about this a little later. We'll, we'll see. Uh, Apple, I think is completely fragmented. Like I get what they're doing, you know, into where they, they like to offer, they, they basically pretend that like the iPhone eight is their low end or the XR or the SE two or whatever. But, you know, now it's not just a family of one, one or two phones right now there's, yeah, they're all supported by Apple. And, you know, you're going to get that, that quote unquote, great security out of the box anyway. Uh, As always, I would argue that Android can be far more secure if you know what you're doing. But regardless, you know, I mean, you're still getting somewhat of a unified experience, but I mean, now there's just a ton of different hardware and I mean, and it's starting to become pretty kludgy. Um, but with Raspberry Pi, I mean, it is really nice to just have this standard that, that an entire, you know, aftermarket can, can really build around, uh, which is one of the exciting things that can happen in computing at any given stage. Um, So now, you know, so having, having desktop class computing with the Raspberry Pi 4, that was exciting. We talked about it and it is exciting and it's awesome. Okay. I mean, is it the speediest goddamn experience on the planet? No, but it's good and it's good enough. uh, And especially for the price tag. Now for a lot of people though, they didn't always enjoy the uh, uh, options or one could argue lack thereof. Um, of options as far as Linux distros or you know operating systems that can run on it. Um, I mean, I, I like the fact that it can run free FreeBSD. I've done that. Uh, you know, certainly Ubuntu Mate. Um, little choppy, but it could do it. But now, since the Raspberry Pi Four again is a desktop class computer, uh, now it can run a desktop class OS all the way, and so you can natively install Ubuntu Twenty Ten, and everything just works right out of the box. Um, and you, you gotta understand that. I mean, and again, it's full fat, like there's no tricks. There's no, Oh, this is for arm and this is for blah, blah. it just works. And what software I've seen so far, all of that works, uh, incredibly. I mean, just, just an exciting development. And there are really two great things that can come out from this similar to iPhone, how Apple has very real, you know, can very easily, uh, put out security patches and handle security issues, Uh, well, let's just say with the quickness, because there is this, even though, again, it's far more fragmented now, but basically this unified hardware platform, um, ultimately Ubuntu can be far more on top of, you know, pushing out security issues that are directly related to the Raspberry Pi. And I think that's only a good thing and it's worthwhile for them to do. Um, The other, the flip side of this is that the ARM processor of the Raspberry Pi is, you know, is resilient against um, a lot of the, you know, more concerning uh, processor level, um, you know, exploits. I mean, think uh, like Spectre, Meltdown and so on. I mean, the Raspberry Pi wasn't, isn't affected by any of that. So this ends up becoming a really interesting, very secure platform. And ironically, you know, as powerful, especially for, for the price tag that it is and having full on Ubuntu in all of this, I mean, the irony is, is that effectively, you know, as long as you don't need a laptop one, and, and you're not into like, you know, really, really hardcore gaming, um, the best computer in the world happens to be the cheapest <laughs> that's and the os is free baby you know i mean ubuntu costs nothing slap 2010 on there have a good time i i, I thought this was just brilliant incredibly exciting news you know i got a lot of. it's funny because i got a lot of um a response from the last episode of sovereign tech which boy what are we up to 394 or does that mean episode 400 is coming oh shit where's episode 300 wait Exciting times. Anyway, uh, (laughs) I got a lot of like people when when I said, and and it's funny because this isn't new. I mean, I know I have a lot of new listeners and I understand that. And please, folks, I implore you. Sovereign Tech episodes are, I think, and I know I'm not the only one. There's plenty of other listeners who would tell you as much. It's evergreen content. Like the things that I, I do not talk about fly by night solutions. I do not talk about really fly. Generally, I don't talk about fly by night issues. And even if they are, they, the only reason I talk about them, even if it's like a current event or something of the moment, I talk about it because it gives commentary on either the past or what is to come. And that has happened many, many times where I've said, Hey, I, you know, I said, this is going to happen five, six years ago, you know, and you can go back to those episodes. It's evergreen content. And so I implore you to go back and and listen. But anyway, a lot of people made a comment. They thought it was really wild how I said that it's like, yeah, you know, we, we want to, <laughs> the real goal is to, is for, you know, us, whatever that means, you know, people, I guess of a certain uh, persuasion, uh, to go off and, you know, build Rivendell. Right. And well, you can hear more of that when you go back to, to last week's episode, but I gotta, I gotta tell you, I mean, in my Rivendell, like the computers, if there were computers, it probably all be raspberry Pis. um, laptops. No, (laughs) you know, if you're going to be on a computer, you're going to do it with intention and you're going to sit down at a fucking desk to get business done. And then you're going to get up and you're going to go live life. But regardless, uh, so I I just, I think this is awesome. Um, and if you haven't gotten a raspberry Pi yet, here is your best excuse to jump on that. That said, I mean, I know a lot of people look on the gaming side. Cause I, I mean, I have a lot of listeners that are gamers. It's why we have a whole gaming grid segment of the show. Um, I've noticed, and I'm really disappointed by this, that GOG. I, like I love this company. A part of me really feels like they've fallen from grace. Meaning that, and, and I hate to say it cause I love them and, and they've done amazing things. Uh, and they've done enough, you know, they've done so much, especially for preserving art as in preserving classic video games, uh, which is absolute art, modern games, eh. (laughs) but but they've done so much for preserving art. They don't need to do any more, but that said, you know, to give commentary on what they are, not so much what they were, of course, I'll remember them for what they were. Uh, it seems like they've basically stopped supporting, um, Linux gaming overall. And I'm sure they have the install numbers to know. I mean, they never put out, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I just want to, you know, touch on it if you are considering, and I think you should, if you want a genuinely secure computing platform, right? You want the Raspberry Pi 4, you want it running 2010, You or you want it running Ubuntu, right? Um, but as far as gaming, and I know you're going to want to do it, like, wouldn't you want to play TIE Fighter on that little Raspie? Yeah, of course you would. Um, I have noticed, I mean, they have really, really, backpedaled support. And even when you go to their site, you know, everything is listed as either being compatible with 1604 or like 1810 versions of Ubuntu. There is no mention whatsoever of versions 2004 and 2010. And I've done some recent installs and I've run into a lot of issues. I mean, I can fix them. Yes. And that's the beauty of open source. Okay. And of having, you know, like a real power user uh, desktop environment, but I I'm disappointed, you know, that, that, that they're basically just ignoring that and, and it's seemingly just letting it go. I mean, there's one thing, you know, that they never put, um, GOG galaxy, you know, their, their platform software that they, they've still never made, even though they're up to like version two point whatever for windows now, they never ever ported that. Um, and, and I know I think with like crossover or something, you can actually install it on, uh, on Linux, but, they never ported it to at least Ubuntu and, 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 that's, that's just, it's such a shame because if they're all about preserving stuff, they should know the importance of being on a platform that literally cannot pull the rug out from underneath them. Right. Because if canonical changes something tomorrow, you have a you have a million Ubuntu forks that can, you know, not go forward with the change. Like they, they, they don't have to enact it. And anyway, lost opportunity. But regardless, great news. I mean, inexpensive news, frankly, because again, you know, you can put together a Raspberry Pi four very inexpensively and to be able to just pop on Ubuntu 2010 dynamite. Um, And, you know, I didn't see any like great new feature sets, by the way, just to comment on 2010. But, uh, or, you know, any, any, anything that was really, uh, I don't know, just getting me excited as far as that goes. I plan on other than with the Raspberry Pi, I plan on sticking with Ubuntu 2004, um, on most of my systems, so you know, uh, it's not like I'm gonna pay that much attention to the latest and what's happening with Ubuntu anyway. Um, I mean, a lot of updates with Ubuntu, I, I don't know how I feel about this. and I get why they they have to do it. but so much of it has to do with, uh, I mean, just a lot of integrate, I mean, and we're not talking from the enterprise side. I mean, we're, we're talking just average user side. A lot of it has to do with integration with cloud services and so on. And, and I understand, I know that that's the way that so many people are going as far as computing. And I mean, it's not the way they're going. It's the way it's gone for years now, but yeah, I mean, that just doesn't do anything for me, but I guess that's what gives me confidence in sticking with 2004 for, you know, the next decade. Um, but anyway, you know, speaking of, uh, of compatibility, uh, issues or lack thereof, perhaps, um, something that we talked about and that had been announced, I want to say earlier in the summer of 2020, uh, has finally been released. Uh, and we have some more details on how it all shakes out. Uh, and that is parallels in Chrome OS, meaning that Chrome OS can now run windows apps, uh, through virtualization. Now we have a much better idea. I mean, we already knew when we talked about this a few months ago, when they announced it was going to happen and they had said that it would end up getting released September, 2020. And impressively in our present, um, uh, climate, uh, Google delivered on exactly that. So, I mean, and part of course, what allows for that is both Chrome OS and parallels are rock solid, uh, you know, well, parallels of software. Chrome OS, of course, is an operating system. In fact, it's Linux itself, but anyway, it, it is impressive that they delivered it on time, uh, this year. So this is something right now, whether or not this is going to change in the future, I suppose is up to some debate, but for right now, it's something that's technically only for enterprise users. Um, and that means, that it's attached to very specific. This is part of that hardware platform where Google has to verify every computer that runs Chrome OS. It has to run through their, you know, their process there has to get their stamp of approval so they can very much control, um, what hardware has to be updated and, and so on. Um, but also of course, you know, it's easy for them to identify what Chrome OS is running on. Now there are people have, taken steps to make Chrome OS or a version thereof effectively work on any machine. But regardless, Google knows what computers are meant for enterprise and what are not. Now it appears that you can purchase an enterprise class, uh, you know, Chrome OS laptop or desktop, I suppose. Um, And then you would be able to get this option where you could run the, you know, the, the, virtualization layer of parallels on Chrome OS, and then it can run it. This is the funny thing. So apparently there's no real, my understanding when they first, when Google first announced this was that there would be some limitation on what software could actually run that maybe they were concentrating on. Well, does, does Microsoft office work really well on Chrome OS with this running? And you have to understand it is loading. And this is another reason that you can't just run this on any Chromebook because A, to run the virtualization and B, have the hard drive space for it, um, you know, is not something that a little $200 Chromebook is probably going to be able to handle. Uh, It is running basically an entire version of Windows. I mean, this is how Parallels works, but it is running an entire virtualized version of Windows, you know, on top of Chrome OS. So you want a fairly meaty machine to be able to use this uh, effectively. But because of that, it really can run just about anything you throw at it. Now there is, they are still working on communication between, uh, for example, um, in any, if say you're running Windows software, like say you're, you don't have to run Skype because you can run Skype through the Play Store or even through the web browser, but let's say you're running Skype through Parallels, okay, uh, on Chrome OS. So you're running it in Windows. Your webcam would not work, They're, they're trying to get it to where that happens, but apparently the file system communicates with it, with itself very well. I don't have uh, a test unit to, to really check it out, but I've looked into it quite a bit. Um, I mean, this is very impressive, especially since there have been real challenges with uh, apps, you know, Android apps running in Chrome OS and communicating with the Chrome OS native file system. That apparently is not the case uh, with parallels here with, with running windows, windows apps in Chrome OS that they do communicate very well. Um, so there are some things particularly related to USB that still have to get resolved, but it is a sandboxed area. I mean, so that's good. That means, and I expected as much, but that basically means within that virtualized container that, you know, Chrome OS is protected from, you know, the, the myriad of, (laughs) of potential, uh, Uh, malicious, or, you know, I guess we'll just say malware or whatever bugs and problems that and exploits that come along with, you know, running windows 10 and they, they are legion as we well know from this show, but for all intents and purposes, windows, you know, windows software now works within, um, and I don't know, it'd be interesting to see, I couldn't get any clarity on this. It'd be interesting to see if you had to log in to a Microsoft account. Um, just to, to like run the virtual, uh, you know, to run windows in virtualization on parallels on top of, I mean, I know in other instances of parallels on other operating systems, you don't really, uh, but like, you know, how would you go about running UWP apps and things like this? I'd really love to get a deeper dive on it, but it is not something that they're just like releasing and, you know, Google saying, okay, we're done. This is a partnership that they are continuing with and they are going to continually improve. Um, this is. One of the, you know, I mean, we basically have a one, two punch here opening up the show during the foreplay where we talk about all the little tech stories, but they're little tech stories that might tell, you know, might, might actually paint a very large picture. Uh, Did, did I, did I just cross my, my sayings there? (laughs) It doesn't matter. Uh, But you get my point is that we have, so now we have the Raspberry Pi that can run full on Ubuntu 2010, you know, no, no special tricks and it runs it very smoothly. You know, like it's not, you don't get the speed hiccups and other issues that have, that have, I don't want to say plagued, but have been a problem with the Raspberry Pi running Ubuntu, say particularly Ubuntu Mate in the past. So you have a desktop killer for, you know, and, and a secure one at that very inexpensive. Okay. Granted gaming machine, different story. It's not, it's not exactly that, but we've got that then now, you know, now you also have Chrome OS, which is. As we talked about when this first got announced, uh, you know, the partnership with parallels and running Windows apps in uh, you know in, in Chrome OS, you now have a platform that being Chrome OS that can run Android apps, uh Chrome apps, Linux. You know, it can run, I mean, not everything in Linux works perfectly well with what do they call the compatibility layer? Uh Crustini, I think is it's not Crouton. Crouton is when you can like sideload uh Linux and, and run them in parallel on, on a Chromebook, but no Crustini uh, it doesn't run everything in Linux, but it runs most of it. You know, like I've talked about you can run LibreOffice you can run Tor, the Tor browser, Um, you know, very slick. I mean, this is, and and then you have windows apps and then you have Android apps again, Chromebooks fuck Google, but Chromebooks are an incredibly versatile and impressive and secure at that platform. There is the one-two punch. Is there's almost other than being a really hardcore gamer, there is no reason to to run Windows anymore. I haven't seen any runs of Photoshop on on Chrome OS using Parallels, but if that works really well, oh man, <laughs> because then that that's it. Then all you really have is gaming. Um, now gaming is incredibly attractive, no doubt about it. Gaming is attractive on Windows. Uh, particularly, you know, with the less attractive now because of the price hike, uh, you know, the the uh, Xbox Game Pass for PC uh, among, you know, I mean, Steam and GOG and everything else. I mean, come on, you know, PC is still the top gaming platform um, for, for, you know, via emulation or whatever else. But there is basically no reason to be on Windows anymore. I'm not saying there isn't any reason to use Microsoft products. There certainly are but there's no reason to be using windows. Anyway, that I, I just, you know, I'm amazed that it ended up actually getting released in the wild. I was expecting some kind of delays. There were no delays. You do have to pay. And I think this is a one-time fee if you have, uh, or I, I think the organization might have to actually buy it, but folks, it's easy enough to set yourself up, you know, and register as an enterprise if you want to do this with your Chromebook, uh, but you have to pay 70 bucks. For, that's the license cost to run parallels in Chrome OS to be able to use windows apps. So it's not something that's just for free and you have to add that on top of and probably part of that cost is covering some kind of windows license. I'm sure. Uh, I mean, parallels the software cost about that much for years anyway. So, I mean, I don't think that that's, that's a bad proposition to be able, cause this is frankly, this might be the most secure way to fucking run windows software. You know, so if you really have to, uh, not, not a bad way to go. It's something I'm going to look into. And if I get my hands on a test unit, uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll do a review of what the overall experience is like. And again, to Google and parallels credit, uh, they are continually improving, uh, that experience. And this is just another instance in the case of uh, windows going bye-bye. Well, windows, isn't the only thing to go (laughs) bye-bye, uh, I was not surprised, um, by this. I would have been surprised, you know, four years ago or so. Um, because I really thought Google had this space locked up. I thought they, they were just going to own it. They were going to run with it and they have seemingly completely backed off. And I'm not exactly sure why this might have to do more with that antitrust case. I, I mean that they would have been long-term planning this more, but basically, um, daydream Google daydream, which is their VR platform has, why are we talking about so many platforms? Anyway, daydream <laughs> is officially dead. Uh, Google has announced it, that it's over. Um, of course, the, the play movies and TV, uh, app stop support about a, a I don't know, a couple of years ago, Hulu stopped support about a year ago for it. I mean, it's not like the writing wasn't on the wall. And of course it's really not a surprise ultimately because, you know, there's no Google platform except for maybe Gmail that isn't going to eventually get shut down, you know, and yeah, sure. Google docs and drive are, are going to keep going. But other than that, I mean, I just, you cannot count on a, you know, a, a Google platform whatsoever. Uh, just, just don't bother, you know, and daydream certainly proves the point and it's sad. So they released a couple of standalone daydream headsets. Google seemed to be all in on this. Um, they're, I mean, they're at the time, their only real competition was Samsung with their Oculus based gear VR. Uh, of course we've seen other VR headsets go the way of the Dodo, uh, this year, the Oculus go, which I thought was a brilliant headset. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about more about Oculus here in a second. Um, but daydream is is gone and apparently even in android 11 like if you have an android 11 phone which not many of you do yet but you know certainly the updates are coming in fact Nokia already laid out its uh, uh rollout schedule for for android 11 and i mean most most of their headsets that were planned to have android 11 are going to have it by q1 2021 which is amazing in my opinion for such low cost handsets but Daydream um, won't work with Android. Won't even work with Android eleven. So if you were, you know, because you had to control the app store more or less, you had to control somewhat of the Daydream headset through your Android phone. So you'd have to use an older Android phone to even be able to continue to do that. But it is a it is effectively dead. Um, The sad part is that I thought with Google Cardboard that Google really, I mean, they just they had it. I mean, hell, this is one of the rare areas where I feel like Nintendo. I mean, Nintendo was already well ahead of the curve in the nineties, as far as like, you know, headsets and VR and all that. I mean, they were, they were taking R and D and bringing it to market. And I always respect companies when they do that. Um, but Google basically did, you know, Nintendo Labo before Nintendo did Labo and long before they probably even thought of it. I'm sure they saw Google Cardboard and, you know, everybody, you know, Shigeru and everybody at Nintendo were, were just, Oh, the future, (laughs) you know? (laughs) But Google, I guess, didn't see, didn't, didn't see that. And I want to say that Google's failing was in turning it, turning their VR venture into, wow, man. And we're not even getting into Magic Leap, which is owned by Google. Where the fuck is it? I I swear. I still don't know if Kevin Kelly wasn't lying. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, about, about what he saw with magic leap or if it was some like Theranos style horseshit mind boggling anyway, Google, they fucked up when they turn VR into an, a somewhat expensive proposition. I mean, I forget was daydream like 300, 400 bucks, something like that. What made the Oculus go so interesting was that it was sub $200 for a fairly premium VR experience. And I reviewed the Oculus go and I was a fan. Okay. Uh, I, I feel differently about this now. And we've, we've already talked about that. Uh, we might update a little bit here, um, on the matter. Maybe we'll get into that during gaming grid, um, because the quest two is a thing and we should talk about it. Uh, so I'll save the conversation for that. But Google was real with Google Cardboard. That was, I, in my opinion, that was the most not per capita. That that was just the largest percentage of people on the planet that ever used VR was because of Google Cardboard. Now was, was that some kind of market statement that, well, okay, they used Cardboard. Cardboard didn't continue. They didn't like it. No, I don't think it's that it's because Google fucked up. I, I think it's because I mean, there's directions that VR is going that I don't approve of. There are directions that VR can go that I think are incredibly exciting and ultimately wildly beneficial, even at a psychological level, um, for, you know, the human condition, but then, you know, (laughs) moving one's whole life into VR and all this. I mean, that, that gets into, you know, really, really crazy territory, but there are, there are some really potential great options, um, for it. It's just, nobody seems to be taking those. Regardless, Google Cardboard, I mean, one of the beauties of Google Cardboard was, you know, talk about like third party markets that build up around something or, you know, third party companies, uh, you know, an aftermarket that builds up around something that was really happening with Google Cardboard. And you had really exciting shit getting developed. You had these just little cottage companies making, you know, like really more premium uh, Google Cardboard headsets, but they were still the Cardboard, which was great. (laughs) I just thought it it, it was, it was genius. Google Cardboard should have been the future. It should have been of a VR and of a whole lot of things. It should have been the future. And I don't think Google was too early. They just, I don't know if they got greedy or, or if they were getting everybody ready for magic leap. And then two years down, two, three years down the line, after they acquire magic leap, uh, they find out that magic leap was lying to them the whole time or that they're full of shit or it's not possible or whatever. I don't know what happened but they really, really screwed up. You know, it's not like Google glass. Google glass was, well, it's, it was creepy, but B I mean, it was getting marketed to the wrong industry because the only place that Google glass belongs is in the enterprise space. And I mean, and it could really do amazing things there uh, or even in the medical space, but it's not a consumer product. Google cardboard was Something for everybody, and it was so low cost to get into everybody would be willing to give it a shot. And if you just kept building better experiences within it, yeah, they dropped the ball. You know, again, it wasn't like it was ahead of its time, it was at the absolute right time, and Google just didn't stick with it. What a shame. Um, and, and it's not I I I suppose technically maybe it still exists, but yeah, just lost lost opportunities. But let us wrap up with our last bit of business for the foreplay. And that is also something that we had talked about in the past that has finally come to light. Um, It was basically, (laughs) it's a fucking joke, frankly, uh, at the most recent F eight when Zuckerberg was somehow pretending paying lip service, that's for sure to the notion that he somehow cared about privacy or at least for users for himself. Oh yeah. I mean, he flips out when you get a shot of him, uh, you know, an Android form out on, on the ocean, uh, surfing. I mean, uh, sorry. It's an insult to androids. Uh, when, if, I mean, if you try to even live near him, he'll buy out the entire town, you know, uh, or, you know, he wants to have his own little Island. Doesn't matter if, uh, if, the people of the Hawaiian islands, uh, don't want to sell him an island there. Uh, he'll go for it anyway. Uh, <laughs> but I mean to say that he cares about your privacy. Oh no, 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 not a chance. Uh, regardless, something they had described is where they were attempting Facebook was attempting across its major properties. That being Facebook. One could, you could say messenger is a separate property, but whatever. Uh, but Facebook, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, and Instagram that all, we'll say three for this case, would be able to uh, private message uh, and do so with an encrypted back end, uh, you know, just uniformly be- between each other. Uh, and you wouldn't really know the difference of like which one you were actually communicating with. So they did just roll out uh, in the past week or so where you can now, at least between Facebook messenger and Instagram, uh, direct messaging, you can communicate. Uh, and this is something that you opt into at least for now, you, you will get the option, say, when you go into the Instagram app, it'll say, uh, would you like to, you know, upgrade to where you could, you know, communicate with people on Facebook messenger. Um, and then you can hit update, and then it basically allows for it. Um, this is, I mean, more of the end to end encryption side of things is where there would be any interest in the matter at all, in my opinion, to the everyday user. But there is also the fact that now, at the very least, okay, I look, I know a lot of people who, for varying professional reasons, they have to have you know, because we don't like social media on the show, but they have to have a Twitter account or they have to have a LinkedIn account. Of course that that's kind of a, a, an odd hybrid as far as social media goes. Um, or they have to have an Instagram account. Maybe they have to have a Facebook account, maybe, but bottom line being is that, you know, there's varying accounts that certain people seem to have to have. Um, and if there's ones you don't have to have, why have them? Well, one thing I think that could be very interesting is that, you know, there are a substantial amount of people that have an Instagram account. Um, also happen to have like, say a Facebook account, but they have a Facebook account only because that's how they connect with people on messenger. If this gets more people, you know, I I mean yes, like Instagram sure is a sinkhole of time ultimately, right? And one could almost argue because it is an endless scroll that it's 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 nay almost mind control. Be very careful with that term, but regardless. Uh Facebook and Facebook Messenger are not so simple a time sink as Instagram is. They are <laughs> you know, oh, it's it's funny. Did I I don't know if I told the story in a recent episode. So recently for professional reasons, I had to access, um, Facebook. I haven't seen what Facebook proper looks like in a long time. I mean, it has been a long, long, long time. And I, I clicked on it. And my head almost exploded, not out of anger. I just like, I didn't even know where to put my eyes. Like it was just, it was to call it so busy is a terrible disservice (laughs) or a disservice to something terrible. I suppose is a better way to put it. I mean, holy fuck. Like you can't pay attention to one segment of that screen. There is just so much going on. It's an assault on the senses. Horrible. And I mean, I don't know how people navigate this shit anymore. I mean, it, it looks stupidly complex. Uh, I mean, great dark mode, you know, that, that only took forever, but wow. So point being is that, you know, I could totally, totally sympathize with people who, okay, you know, yeah, I don't want Facebook messenger because let's be clear here. Yeah. I mean, this is another, another angle of why this might be, why using, Instagram direct messages to connect with people on Facebook messenger might be, uh, more appealing reason being is that Facebook messenger, and we've talked about this for years. I mean, this has been the case for probably six years now. I mean, the, the permissions it requests for on any device that you put it on are insane to the point that, you know, you could, Facebook messenger could make phone calls for you you know, on your behalf and really without you even knowing, in fact, there is even an exploit that, that took advantage of some of those permissions within Facebook messenger some years back, uh, th- this, or could have nasty, nasty Facebook messenger. You'd never ever want to install that. I mean, we did the slow creep. We talked the slow creep on the show of how to like, eventually get off of Facebook you know, and, and you get to the point where you use the mobile site and then Facebook knew that that's what a lot of people were doing because they didn't want to install the app. And so then they started making a lot of features like app exclusive and you couldn't even like they they took away the ability to use messenger on the mobile site. And you had to, uh, effectively, like you had to install Facebook messenger, the app. And yeah, there was a light version and, and some other things that, that made for some options, but it's just an egregious fucking app to install. I mean, like, it's one thing to suggest. And it's true that if you have a smartphone, you know, your expectations of privacy, unless you manage the, the power and use and the power is in battery as in like turned on. Okay. The power and use of that smartphone, like you have no reasonable expectation of privacy in in that, you know, in that sense. In fact, we talked about that. If you remember recently where uh, Amazon was saying because of what was it the, the the Amazon Halo and some other things that Amazon was doing, they, they said well you shouldn't be worried about our products you should be more worried about your smartphone and it's like they you know they, they called it out they said no yeah you guess what you don't have privacy you know when you when you basically when you have a smartphone but you know people do what they can also professionally a lot of people have to have a smartphone I understand bottom line being okay is that you certainly don't have to just give it up. You know, when you install apps on your smartphone and when you own a smartphone in itself, there are still, you know, steps that you can take to mitigate, uh, the encroachment upon your, you know, your data and your privacy in general, because it's not just about data. It's about what can be gleaned in meat space, right? It's your metadata, so much more. So not having to, I mean, Instagram can be a little nasty with permissions that it requests, but you can turn, you can deny a lot of Instagram's requests and not break the app itself. So if you still find yourself having to talk to people via Facebook messenger, um, you can actually now, thanks to Instagram, I mean, this kind of mitigates the, the issue you can get rid of the Facebook messenger app. You don't need that anymore. You can just use Instagram DMS and you can get rid of, you know, all the Facebook apps in general, minus, you know, Instagram. And I mean, when the WhatsApp communication functionality comes in, that might make things interesting as well. Bottom line being is that this is a far more palatable way to communicate with those people that boy, Facebook messenger is just the only way that it happens. Um, So it's kind of a win in that sense, but it's, you know, it's still, it's a Facebook product. (laughs) And if there's any tech giant, you know, right now that I think is actually still feasible for it to quote unquote, go down, uh, Facebook's the one. And so I don't really want to promote its use, but it's the least egregious of the bunch. So yeah, if, if, if this, if you've had to use Facebook messenger, now's your time to go ahead and delete that fucker. Okay. And you know, just, just stick with Instagram. If you happen to also have an Instagram account. Um, and I mean, I will say this, I don't use Instagram. Um, I still, I, you know, I still have an account. I still have people that do DM me there and all that. And I'm honored. Uh, you know, don't, don't confuse me, but I'll say this. I mean, Instagram, there are some things on there while you want to check your reality and the reality of what's on display there. Um, there are still some, you know, beneficial things to take away from that. Uh, there are still some, some happiness and, 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 you know just just some some good things you know available on that platform and it's not as much the dumpster fire as like say twitter and and some others so anyway i we don't need to get keep talking about instagram we need to get into some other subjects and we are going to take a break going to hit a sponsor and then we'll be right back with more sovereign tech woo Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you, and if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard – don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The golden stallion guarantees a good time. And you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com. And we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show.
1: The main story.
0: It is time for the main story where we get into kind of our our big story of the week. And this is something, this is a subject that just needs to keep coming up. Um, Because again, just like I was saying uh, a few minutes ago here, I get it like some of us have to have smartphones at present. I am one of those people where it, it feels like, okay, I kind of, I mean, does anybody have to have anyone? No, you can go off and run, live in a cave or whatever. And Hey, <laughs> you think I'm going to judge you for that? Oh no. I'm, I will merely sit here and envy, but no, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, I understand And But the thing is, is that much like we were talking about mitigating, you know, concerns around Facebook and messenger and so on, Um, You know, there are ways to mitigate perhaps the way we get or some of our liberties get trampled on by these devices. Um, One of my concerns, long running concerns, is uh, 5G. Now, stop, stop. If you've never listened to the show before, or if this is only like your second or third episode that you've ever heard, I am not talking about. Health issues. I am not talking about any of that kind of crap, not like the direct health issues of 5G, I don't know, zapping your brain or something along those lines. Okay. I am not talking about that. I'm not making any judgment on that. I am not, I'm not, that's not where we're going here. Okay. I have had long standing, ever since we got the first technicals, the first specs around this, I have long standing operational concerns around 5G and it. I mean, it ultimately comes down to this does not appreciatively benefit the consumer. Oh, it benefits the companies to no end. And you could say, well, if it benefits the companies then that trickles down to the consumer. No, that's not true anymore. <laughs> we know that, 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 that absolutely does not equate any longer. In fact, you know that. Uh, so I'm going to get into a little bit of a, uh, an interesting critique from, uh, Android police about 5g that I want because it bolsters much of what I I've said already in the past. And now when I just say it, I mean, it doesn't matter how long I've been a tech journalist when I just say it all oh, golden stallions nuts. But when Android police says it, you know, who are, I mean, I'm knee deep in Android as well, certainly because I mean, fuck, I've written the guidebook, have a new one coming out soon. Uh, you know, the guidebook on security for, for Android devices. Um, me, I'm the one Android police is also if not the top, one of the top news uh, organizations. And I mean, and they do investigative work, you understand, around Android. I mean, they're great. So as as far as, you know, what what they report on and everything. And I think they usually come at things with a pretty even hand. I appreciate what they do. So, you know, when when they come out and have concerns around 5G, I think a lot more people take notice. And so I want to describe, you know, some of what they brought up and how it mixes in with some of the messaging we've been sharing on, on Sovereign Tech. Um, but that said, you know, I mean, to, to bring up, and and this has directly to do with smartphones to talk about the idea that, oh, somehow, you know, oh yeah, no, the the companies always make sure that the consumer gets what they want. Uh, no, (laughs) again, no, no, no. In fact, maybe one of the best cases of this is with the iPhone 12. Um, I suppose we can talk about it briefly, but one of the major scandals, and you could think, wow, this is a first world problem. Um, but according to Apple, it's not a first world problem. So I don't think people getting a little concerned about it uh, is outlandish for them and nor is it like first world concerns. But bottom line being is that with the iPhone 12, uh, Apple has announced they will no longer be shipping a power brick with the, with the phone. Um, and they are giving you a, um, a cable, you know, a charging cable that has lightning on one end, which lightning goes into, you know, of course goes into the iPhone. And then on the other end is USB-C. Now this is part of that, that, that fragmentation we were talking about earlier, because ironically, and I, and this kind of blew my mind. I thought that iPhones had already switched to USB-C in general. I understand why the iPhone SE2 had not, because basically it's just a redressed, uh, iPhone eight with a new processor in it. Right. But I guess the, the iPhone X or the iPhone 10, whatever they wanted to call it. Um, I I think they went with X, right? Anyway, (laughs) that is the only iPhone that's had a USB uh, or that that's been USB C. All other iPhones, even the ones that came out after that are still using lightning. Um, I was very surprised by this. I I was kind of shocked. I know iPads are using USB C as well, but, regardless the issue here is that so many people like that's fine that Apple doesn't want to ship a power brick. Why? Because we all, and it's true. Most of us, you know, we, we have tens of power bricks, if not hundreds of power bricks laying around, you know, that we can use for whatever. And they all more or less work the same minus, you know, different quick charge standards or something like that. Um, And of course their claim is that this is good for the environment. It allows them to use less packaging, which is, you know, something that people get concerned about when they're, you know, into environmental concerns. Um, And also, you know, that's less power bricks that they produce. The problem is is that the fucking cable they gave you is lightning on one end, of course, which it has to be. And then USB-C on the other, not USB-A, which is what most of, if for most people, not all. In fact, I look around, Except for like uh, a two port one that I have in my Jeep, every single charger I've gotten, I have Legion, are are all USB-A. They're not USB-C. So, you know, people called out Apple for this saying, hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, that's great that this is good for the environment, but then... I'm going to have to buy a new charger anyway, because I don't have any chargers that go that, you know, that, that have USB-C at the charging end. And they were totally right for calling them out on this. You know, I I mean, it's, it's just another courage moment, you know, for Apple, Um, which for Apple wasn't courage at all, because they offered you the adapter to plug in, you know, one eighth Jack into, into lightning. But, <laughs> and then they still had the one eighth Jack in all of their computers and everything fuckers. Anyway, so <laughs> I'm never going to get any kind of Apple sponsorship. Anyway, I don't care. <laughs> I wouldn't let that hold me back as is, but you know, so first off, okay. In what way is this a pro customer pro consumer move? It's not just like getting rid of the fucking bezels. I actually, you know what? In, in the Sovereign tech telegram group, which I, I love you people, uh, and, and by all means, everybody should be in there. I mean, cause the conversations are just dynamite and some, some really funny shit at times too. Uh, but I actually had some great listeners, long-time listeners explain, no, actually, I like not having the bezel and you know, they, they raised the their reasons why for it and everything. And I mean, I was glad to finally hear from somebody that, you know, that, that they like the fact that phones are getting rid of bezels, but. of the people I've ever talked to. In fact, this, this, uh, one particular listener who I just think he's, he's dynamite, uh, you know, most, most listeners just by everybody. He's the first person I've ever heard that, that said that they wanted, uh, that they, they, they like not having the bezel, you know, um, or, you know, everybody wants longer battery life, but then they just keep making these phones smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less battery. Right. When, if they were the same size, same, just the same thickness as say an iPhone, you know, five years ago, which everybody seemed fucking fine with it then and thought it was sexy as hell. Uh, you know, you could have probably three, four day battery life. So the idea bottom line being is that no, they're, they're not, they're not pro consumer. Um, I mean, it gets worse because if we want to talk about being environmentally conscious, If you wanted to be environmentally conscious, how about stop making new fucking smartphones, new fucking designs and all that stuff. When we know every single change that they make is incredibly iterative, you know, they'll then come out with a new model in five years, maybe when you're ready to have something, you know, really groundbreaking again. Uh, but I mean, they, they can't do that, right? Because I mean, the business, the, the, the mixed economy that we live in, Um, does not, does not favor someone actually providing value, uh, to the consumer ultimately. But yeah, I, there's, there's nothing this, it was like the lowest a, okay. First off it's, it's abundantly clear. Apple knows that you're going to go out and probably buy it from the Apple store. You're going to, or, you know, from, from their online store, you'll have to buy a new charger. And they just, you know, skimmed another 20 to 40 bucks, probably off of you from that. I mean, Apple's always made a shit ton of money off of accessories and forcing you into those accessories, right? Like remember when the MacBook only had the one port. Mm -hmm. So they're going to make you buy a new one, not the most environmentally conscious, because that's more packaging, right? Uh, Right out of the gate. Then also not only that, But then all those other wonderful USB, USB, a uh, uh, powered bricks, you know, power adapters that all work perfectly fine, have worked fine for years, frankly, because they're such simple objects. Those become trash. Right. (laughs) If if the average, you know, I mean, because a lot of people, frankly, their iPhone is is their computer like they don't even have a computer. And so all those power bricks that, that could be so helpful gone. So Apple really just created a ton of waste, which I thought that's what they were trying to avoid. I mean, it it just, it's, it's dumb. It doesn't make any sense at all, or at least their marketing, their narrative doesn't make any sense. I mean, do they have quote unquote logical reasons internally for why they did this? Sure. Sure but then don't tell me that this is a pro consumer or even pro environment move because it's doing quite the opposite. So of course, to bring this back, the iPhone 12, of course, is going to be a five G phone five um, G. Oh, that's the new fucking hotness. Everybody's got it. You know, everybody's got to jump on five G. We got to switch over to five G, which again, um, is there an appreciable difference? This is The point I've made over and over again. Is there an appreciable difference in speed? between 4g and 5g, or is there an appreciable difference in experience between 4g and 5g? And I have argued on this show for some time. No, there is not. So getting everybody on board basically, or I mean, you're not forcing them yet, but basically trying to lead them into jumping on a new, uh, you know, radio technology, um, does not, does not ultimately feel pro consumer whatsoever. Now I know that 5g where like it really wins or where it supposedly shines is in its coverage, not necessarily in its increase in speed. Um, again, it may be technically faster, but does that mean anything to the end user? Does that speed mean anything? No, there is no appreciable difference within the speed with which a website would load. Okay. All right. Now, or are we going to get into well, but it'll make 4K content stream better? Okay, but then 4K content's a whole other issue. And I mean, talk about one of the major issues here. Like th- this is the shit always kills me. So you have all these people talking about, you know, environmental concerns, like say Apple or whatever. Or you get the people that come out and say, Well, Bitcoin is bad for the environment. Any environment let, let me just let me just call it straight out. Any environmentalist. Any environmentalist that uses Netflix is full of shit because the concern around say Bitcoin being bad for the environment is its server use, you know, power usage and all this other stuff. Let's talk about 4k content as far as what kind of power, what kind of resources that takes to stream that to fucking everybody. By the metrics of these people that argue against the use of Bitcoin or, you know, have concerns around the environment and everything. Netflix slash 4k and pick your streaming service is an environmental nightmare. And so to say that somehow, well, we got to go to 5 I I mean, for Apple in one breath to be saying, we care about the environment. We're switching everybody over to 5g. Why are we going to 5g? It'll make 4k content, better, blah, blah. I mean, do you, do you see how, like how contradictory all these fucking asshats are, it's a scam. I mean, look, the ecology and having concerns, having ecological concerns is an absolutely legitimate, real thing. It is a science. But the bulk of what you hear from either governments or businesses, not all, but a lot of them, they are absolutely full of crap. And I mean it. And, and and people get pissed off because Netflix is a goddamn cult. Every time I rip on Netflix, people get pissed the fuck off. And, and I I can't believe people aren't willing to check themselves when they when they get such a strong reaction, when somebody criticizes a, f- a fucking streaming service. You should be able to handle somebody criticizing a streaming service. But no, people like <laughs> they just they, they run away from the show and, and it, it boggles my mind. But I mean, I'm just going to say it. I call bullshit on anybody who claims to be an environmentalist and also has a Netflix account. I call absolute bullshit on you. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, of course I'm not a Christian, but I'm reminded of, (laughs) of Jesus, you know, calling people hypocrites. And I just picture, you know, an environmentalist that uses Netflix walking up to Jesus. And if you were real and, and And Jesus wouldn't even bother to call him a hypocrite. He would just stand there, slack jawed, the son of God, slack jawed saying, what part of the equation did you miss? Anyway, (laughs) didn't mean, didn't mean to bring that guy into this. (laughs) So I have a point that I want to get to with 5g. Okay. Um, Again, no appreciable difference for the end user. So this is not a consumer play whatsoever. And no, the companies are not that they, all they're interested in is collecting more and more and more and more data. And that does not equate to a benefit to you. In fact, there's plenty of ways to argue. It's quite the opposite. So from Android police, let's get into the story. It's from September 30th, 2020. So fairly fresh, um, and, and here's the headline by David Ruddick. 5G has succeeded in making my phone more of a pain in the ass. Can you hear angry video game nerd right now? Ass! I'll join him in that. I love it. I love the fact that they went with a title like that. You'd think that was me talking, right? Saying, oh, it's making my phone more of a pain in the ass. No, this is Android police. Let's read a little bit of this. 5G is a necessary and transformative technology. Uh, not the best way to start it off. So you, you'll get no argument from me. Well, I I'll argue with you, but let's keep going. It's going to allow our cellular networks to scale to previously unimaginable levels. Why? For what? Reading on and connect everything from traffic lights to tractors, to truck assembly plants in the process. What could go wrong? That's me adding that. in, by the way, Golden Stanley, reading on. But if you're like me, you probably know 5g first and foremost as the next generation of wireless connectivity for your smartphone. That also overwhelmingly remains the core purpose of almost any 5g deployment on earth right now, aspirational IOT marketing aside. And here's the thing about these, those networks, they're fairly awful to actually use right now. Having switched between a number of 5g ready phones and the two meaningfully extant 5g networks in the U S Um, I can say confidently that the only thing 5g has succeeded in accomplishing is making my phone less reliable and more aggravating. I considered saying 5g has succeeded in making my phone more of a shithead, but that seemed a bit immature. And I definitely don't want to come off as immature on the internet. (laughs) Uh, but again, Okay. So, so, you know, let's stop here for a second. Okay. 5g is not ready. It's growing pain's time. Yep. I can understand that with any rollout of any new technology of any new standard. However, I want you to go and watch the commercials, go and watch the iPhone 12 presentation, go and watch all this different stuff. And they're telling you right now, 5g is fucking, you need to jump on 5g right now. The reason they want you to do that is because you are effectively funding much of this rollout. And if ultimately, which I hope you do after either listening to this episode or a compilation of my uh, conversations and concerns around 5G, you will say, no, I am not interested. I did an episode recently called the last phone where uh, I had stated that, you know, get your, get your last phone now, you know, the ones that, that only use LTE, right. That only use 4G. Um, because we don't want any of this 5g business. Now I know you can kind of turn off 5g. I mean, again, it's a soft switch. So can you really, but you know, get, get that last phone. And then when it gets to the point where they're like, Oh, you have to use 5g. No, thanks. Particularly for the very reason that I don't need to be, my device does not need to be communicating with traffic lights. It does not need to be communicating with tractors. It doesn't have to No. This level of interconnectivity is, I mean, it's just, it's just waiting for another Mirai botnet, right? Reading on to be sure this isn't the first time a generational network leap came with growing pains. Uh, If you remember the transition early, uh, LTE and boy do I ever you know exactly how bad it was terrible battery life and constant issues switching between 3G and 4G for the data uh, for data made the first LTE smartphones downright bad to own. But they came with a truly tantalizing silver lining: usable video streaming over mobile data. In my mind, it wasn't simply the iPhone that pushed the smartphone into hypersaturation. Mobile media consumption was a massive driver for the everyday consumer, and 4G enabled an explosion of that consumption. You no longer had to download all of your media at home, and you weren't locked out of apps like uh, YouTube and Netflix at work, and you- more. Hell, you could even tether your laptop and have a usable high-speed data connection uh, anywhere your phone had coverage. LTE was worth all that pain because the payoff was transformative. Uh, As 4G truly began to spread, the question, why do you have a smartphone, became why don't you? A moment in smartphone history that's easy to miss in the shadow of the still very important early 2G and 3G iPhones. Okay, so let's take a moment to talk about that. I think uh, David Ruddick here is 100% on with that. I mean, I, 3g, you know, I, I still think we would have done okay with just that, but regardless 4g, there was an appreciable difference in exactly what he's talking about. The fact that you could have at least clear, uh, uh, visual, you know, video, um, it wasn't a matter of 4k. It's like, Oh, finally I can watch videos say on the move or, you know, whatever. Um, there were, you definitely saw websites load faster. I mean, like there was an absolute difference an appreciable difference for the consumer between 3g and 4g. I will not deny that. Okay. What I'm telling you is that 5g is nowhere near that transformative, not for the consumer, but you are footing the bill. Let's read on 5g through uh, though paints a far more nebulous picture of the future. Carriers and tech companies have tried to latch onto themes to be sure near instantaneous file downloads, ultra low latency gaming, AR and V do you fucking game on your phone like that? Stop, stop. Anyway, AR and VR and multi uh, gigabit wireless from broadband have all been on offer as potential fulfillment of the standards promise. None have meaningfully materialized though, nearly two years after the commercial 5g network deployments began. Instead, my experience has been one that at times is markedly worse than even our existing 4g networks on T-Mobile files actually download slower on my phones over 5g than they do over 4g latency can be totally ridiculous too. With pings over 200 milliseconds at times, 400% worse than what I typically experience on 4g and that's being conservative on 18 T 5g data is typically no faster than 4g, assuming it works at all. My note 20 ultra frequently just loses data connectivity when on AT&T's 5g for no apparent reason. While all things in the status bar report. A okay toggling airplane mode often resolves the issue, but it's an unwelcome flashback to those early LTE days. I was promised would be consigned to the history books. Even when 5g does work on AT&T, I'll frequently experience strange delays in the connection, actually responding resulting in apps like Twitter spinning for five seconds or more as they, Oh no. Uh, as they attempt, as they attempt to refresh their data Slash Often just gives up entirely. I haven't had such issues consistently on four G in years. So there's one more paragraph, and I, I think we'll read it, okay? But this is this brings up another point. Like you know, one of the arguments for why smartphones are such an amazing thing is that there have been so many businesses that have that weren't even like it wasn't uh, uh, monetarily feasible. For them to exist before, uh, you know, we, we had smartphones and arguably smartphones powered with the speeds of 4G. The rub here is that these businesses were able to flourish because there was a standard 4G, not only that, but a reliable standard. Okay, so that's the problem is that now you can say, well, in a couple of years, 5G might be all right. Yeah. But until then we're dealing with like the massive technical issues. When again, the point has to keep getting driven home. There is no appreciable difference. Like, you know, I mean, one thing, come on, you have to wait five seconds for Twitter to, 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 to refresh. Oh, 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 great. Satan. What? Five seconds. I can't wait five seconds. There's a Turkey in the oven. I don't know what, like why, (laughs) What what is the big deal about like having to like oh instantaneous downloads? What, they're not fast enough? Oh, heavens to Betsy. I might have to be in my own head for 30 seconds because I have to wait for this PDF to download or something, which they don't even usually take 30 seconds. This this is so mind-numbingly I don't want to say first-world problem but this is, I don't want to call it surface. It, it's insubstantial to say we've lost our ability to be patient is understatement of the century. But the point I really want to get here, get in here is just that with this constant shifting and look, it's not like, don't tell me. Cause I can tell you that you're wrong. Don't tell me that, well, 5G, I mean, that's just, that's going to be the standard for, you know, the next 10, 20 years or something like, Oh no, no, no. We know. And we talked about it on this show just a few episodes ago about how Samsung is already planning on 6G. It doesn't even exist yet, but they expect 6G to be rolling out uh, like early 2025, going into 2028 and full rollout in 2030. If as a lot of like Silicon Valley likes to tell you, as a lot of these entrepreneurs like to tell you, or as a lot of these little pop-up businesses that are able to exist because of the quote unquote smartphone revolution, if you want to call it that, uh, I have arguments against it, but whatever. Okay. If people just have to deal with constantly changing standards, not, not standards of like, oh, is it USB-C or is it USB-A or some, you know, horseshit like that when they have to deal with entirely different communication standards, you know, like 4g and 5g and ones that have to go through growing pains, which I get it. That does. That's kind of how it has to work in some ways. None of these businesses can pop up. You're always, you know, you're always working against the clock or basically the clock of, all right, when does the communication standard change? And when am I basically, when do I have to spend however many hundreds or even thousands of dollars to jump on board, you know, on top of a new spec, This isn't helpful to anybody other than it, maybe it's helpful to, you know, again, to the the businesses that exist, you know, to the tech giants, to the collection of data, to governments and everything else. And, you know, are they looking out for you? No, <laughs> not at all. Well, let's finish up this little story. So here's uh here's the last paragraph. You may already be ready to, or you may already be ready to protest, quote, my T-Mobile 5g works perfectly fine. I don't know what you're talking about. End quote. And I've heard such sentiment on social media from time to time. But my colleague, Ryan Hager complains of similar issues with T-Mobile's 5G network in Boston, where he experiences even worse speed disparities than I do. 4G is often twice or three times as fast as 5G for him. And 5G service can be so slow that it borders on unusable in anything but ideal conditions. Quote, for me, I'm better off without 5G entirely, end quote, he says, adding that he generally just disables it on his phones and chooses to use 4G because it offers faster speeds. This has also been borne out in independent testing, and there is a link, link in the show notes for this story. Uh, and there is a link there where they're they're showing that the, the speed tests around 5G and the connectivity tests and it's a fucking mess compared to 4G reading on surely our 5G melodies are likely tied up in a mess of factors local coverage still being uh, figured out issues at the network level and second generation radios and current 5G handsets still being pretty new technology no doubt 5G will get faster more reliable and less finicky it will eventually be good but as far as i'm concerned the state of 5G right now is all pain no payoff and who wants that that's the end of the story. And I say, I sure as hell don't again. I mean, and, and boy, you know, during the, during COVID-19, that whole situation for many people, rightly or wrongly, for many people, the importance of having reliable connectivity via their smartphone with 4g is another thing that can't be understated. I mean, wildly important. It is not the time to be worrying about, you know, a completely unproven, uh, it tested and found wanting, you know, new technology like 5g and also, okay. So 5g we're early stages, but what? So in three, two, three years, in fact, I've seen that from, from some people saying that, well, you don't really need to buy a 5g phone for another two years. Well, in two years, that's going to fit around the timeline where major tech companies are already talking about. And now we'll start putting out 6g. I mean, it's just, it's a fucking money grab without question. Again, with no appreciable, I I hope that this phrase sticks in your mind with no appreciable difference, no appreciable advantage for the end user, for the consumer, for you. If anything, it could be a net negative, much like is what is being described here. If you want to wait two years and then buy a 5G phone, fine. If I were you, I'd say you know, wait two years and then toss your smartphone into the lake of fire. Get like, start planning now for how do I live without a smartphone? Okay. And that way, by the time 5g is quote unquote ready, you are out of that nightmare of a network and you know, it's a nightmare. I mean, all the different devices and things that they want 5g to be able to connect to that, that gets into a whole other issue of, I'll use the word again, cluginess that gets into a whole other issue where, you know, so much software is, I mean, like the average app is basically written, you know, to handle, okay, this is on a smartphone. These are the kind of connections I'm going to have, blah, blah, blah. But now you're running into an issue where yes. Okay. The antennas are more or less the same, but like, what is handling that data? Where does that data go? I mean, there are just, there are massive implications without having to talk about the NSA or something like that as far as privacy concerns, but certainly that's there. Um, I mean, this is a data connection. That's just going to follow you fucking everywhere. And I have no interest in being a part of that. We Talked at the top of the show about how, oh, you know, we could use an operating system that hand, that, that works like a modern computer on not so modern hardware requirements. Right. You know, like with say a Linux distro using XFCE. Fantastic. So I can still use, you know, I can buy and refurbish old, you know, old computers, old laptops and everything. And I can just stay out of this nightmare network that's being developed. And it is, it, it, it's just a nightmare waiting to happen. All it's going to take is one good botnet connecting to all of the fucking 5g light bulbs, the 5g bricks. And I mean like the bricks and buildings that are probably going to have these in them, uh, that connects to all the tractors and traffic lights. And then everything, you can just hear the sound. No, thanks. Not going to rely on that. So what do you build in its stead? Well, well, That's, I think, a conversation for another time. In fact, maybe we'll save that for the next episode because there is a conversation that there's a story that I've had um, that actually got sent to me that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, but I think we needed to cover this first. We needed to put the kibosh on the very notion of 5G in the first place, and then we can get into the bigger subject of something that might sound pejorative, but actually it's not dumb cities. What does that all mean? I'm going to save that for another episode. Maybe we'll get into it in the next episode, but it's going to be uh, a joining of all these subjects, a hub for everything that we've been talking about and the importance of these things. And it's, and you're going to be, I think you'll be surprised when again, not coming from me coming from, I think the stories from the guardian, not coming from me, where they talk about the importance of having places where perhaps there isn't 5g. But we'll save that for the next episode. We've got a lot more to get into this one, though. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech.
1: Woo! One can hear you scream. Alien, rated R from 20th Century Fox. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's hacksec. It is time
0: for hack sec, where we talk issues of hacking and security, you know, something else that I have to, and maybe I'll make it the, uh, bit of a side story for the episode when we talk about dumb cities, because for most people that I've, I've talked with and a lot of articles that I've seen online where people, where the, the end user gets excited about 5g, it always comes down to 4k video content. Now, when I have talked about the, the fact that they're and it's a fact, the fact that there is no appreciable difference between 4g and 5g. Okay. Other than, you know, maybe, maybe more reliable, say coverage, but again, we're not even remotely there yet. And so one can ask the question, is that even going to be true? Like, can we even prove that, that that's how that's going to work? But regardless, uh, no appreciable difference, right. For, for the end user. 4k is another one of those things that we have to talk about where, we don't have to talk about it, but I want to talk about where there is no appreciable difference between 1080p and 4k. You could say, well, but I can see the difference. Can you really, there is a big conversation to have around that because a lot of that is pure trickery. So we'll save that subject as well, but just in case somehow you're, you're holding on to that last, you know, uh, that, that final fig leaf, right? On the statue of David. If you're holding on to that final fig leaf before, you know, the big guy shows, we got to talk about 4k. So we'll save that though. What I want to talk about here is actually a follow-up. Uh, well, it's kind of a follow-up to what I consider to be actually the single biggest story of the year of 2020. And I know what you're thinking. Well, he's got to be talking about COVID-19. No, I'm not. Uh, Or, oh, he's, he's got to be talking about the protests and all this other. No, I'm not talking about those either. The single biggest story of 2020 that a lot of people seem to have already well forgotten. Sadly. Was the Twitter hack that occurred. Um, I covered this. We talked about some of, you know, what, what uh, reality could be gleaned based upon What, uh, you know, what Jack Dorsey, what Twitter had shared about the, the, the situation. Um, of course, last week we talked about how Twitter for at least the spreading of truth and information is effectively useless based upon what happened with the New York post fuck Trump, but what happened with the New York post. Okay. Uh, is one of those situations, but, the idea that there that Twitter somehow has a God mode and that all the encryption and security in the world means absolutely nothing for your data and your account, which how many people like we talked about earlier rely on their professional appearance or professional or, you know, their work with a Twitter account. I mean, especially boy, if you're a journalist or something like that, you know, the score. Um, But the fact that there is a God mode of some kind that can just overcome you know, all your 2FA, all this shit. And just all it takes is one employee having a bad day and all of that security means nothing. Now, the reason that I think that this is the biggest story of 2020 and we have kind of a sequel story to it. The reason I think that it's, it was the biggest story is because that doesn't just apply to Twitter. It applies to the internet in general. And you should think about that. In fact, this particularly as it relates to what we were just talking about with 5g. Yeah. We don't have to bring it. We're not talking about health concerns. Don't even have to talk about health concerns. There's there's no need to get into that to denounce concepts like 5g and some other things. Okay. Now, so what happened with Twitter? Why are we talking about this again? Why are we talking about the Twitter hack? Uh, I mean, if you remember the Twitter hack, I hope you remember I mean, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, all these major accounts, basically all the blue checkmark accounts got shut down temporarily uh, while Twitter was figuring out what the fuck just happened. Right. Well, one of the things that I brought up at the time when I initially was talking about it, and that was during an episode that actually Ellen was on as well. And we were having kind of a, you know, a pre-conversation. I mean, because it had just happened like that day, hours previous. And so we didn't have any information what was going on. And I laid out various uh, uh, concerns. You know, for example, one of the concerns was, and this will get into our story here. One of the concerns that I had was that, wait, how did this happen? Are you telling me that Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, you know, all these very high profile individuals, these celebrities and whatever else that they didn't bother to have two FA on or that they at the very least, like they weren't using a YubiKey, you know, maybe, I mean, there could be a concern around using SMS, as we always say on this show, don't use that for two factor if you can help it. Um, but what, like they, they weren't using one-time pins. They weren't using, you know, uh, uh, hardware to, to secure their accounts. Like that's, that's unbelievable. These are people worth millions, if not billions of dollars, incredibly high profile. They, they cannot afford to not secure the fuck out of their accounts. But one of my concerns was, is that they somehow, for some reason had not well, while it appears that that's not what happened, that it was this God mode that made all of the 2FA meaningless anyway with Twitter, uh, a very funny thing occurred recently. and this story is from October 22nd, 2020 from TechCrunch by Zach Whitaker. President Trump's Twitter accessed by a security expert who guessed his password. do you want to know what the password was? Maga 2020 exclamation point. I mean, and none of that was capitalized, so I guess he lost points there. You know, you use a special character, you use numbers. <laughs> but you're not supposed to make it something that you can fucking guess, you moron. Uh, let's read a little bit here. <clears throat> A Dutch security researcher says he accessed President Trump's uh, and that's at real Donald Trump uh, Twitter account last week by guessing his password. And of course we said what it was. Victor Gevers, a security researcher at the GDI Foundation, sounds like something out of command and conquer, but moving on and chair of the Dutch Institute for Vulnerability Disclosure, which finds a report security vulnerabilities told Oh, is that what they do? Uh told TechCrunch he guessed the president's account password and was successful on the fifth attempt. <laughs> What was, what was number one slap nuts in chief? <laughs> that would have been my first guess. <laughs> Dumbass, uh, I don't know. NYC something. <laughs> Reading on the account was not protected by two factor authentication, granting Gever at Gever's access to the president's account. After logging in, he emailed us cert to division of Homeland security, cyber unit, cybersecurity, and infrastructure security agency, to disclose the security lapse, which TechCrunch has seen. Gevers said the president's Twitter password was changed shortly after. It's the second time. I know you're like, oh, this can't get any worse. Come on, Brian, that's enough. There's no way it it happened before. (laughs) It's the second time Gevers has gained access to Trump's Twitter account. First time was in 2016 when Gevers and two others extracted and cracked Trump's password from the 2012 LinkedIn breach. The researchers uh, took his password, which was at the time you're fired. His catchphrase from the television show, the apprentice and found it, let them into his Twitter account. Gevers reported the breach to local authorities in the Netherlands with suggestions on how Trump could improve his password security. (laughs) Look, See, you, you, you know, you, you could, you can kind of make the claim, right? Kind of, kind of, despite the fact that he's the president of the fucking United States. You could kind of make the claim. Well, this never happened to him before. Maybe, you know, chump, I mean, okay, he's the president, but that doesn't make him a technology expert. Yeah, that could be a problem considering what he legislates on, but hey, well, Maybe he didn't even know that two-factor authentication was a thing. Maybe the CIA dropped the ball, you know, or, or Homeland Security dropped the ball, or the Secret Service dropped the ball I'm letting him know about that. Or he just, he didn't get the memo. He didn't listen because he was too busy grabbing. I mean, who knows? No, this happened to this dumb shit before. No two-factor authentication the last time.
1: How how is
0: it? How is it? You've you've got to explain this to me. And I don't care who does. You You know the email address. You know how to find me. You got the NSA. How is it that the White House consistently argues and says to us, the plebs, that you know, everything that they legislate, everything they do, all that data collection that they engage in that Edward Snowden warned us about, all this different shit, blah blah blah. They are there to protect us. They are concerned about our security. They are concerned about security. They know better than we do. And the fucking commander-in-chief doesn't have two FA on on his Twitter account. The most basic level of security you could fucking have. I mean, apparently somebody kind of told him how to do a little bit of a better password than you're fired from four years ago. Why? Why? Why should I trust any of you with my security when you can't even lock down your own fucking Twitter account? I mean, I just look around and I, i mean. Yeah, I'm I'm the first person to believe that, you know, all politicians are morons, but I keep getting told, yeah, they're stupid, but Brian, they have smart people working for them. That's why they have a cabinet and all this and oh, they understand how to do these things. And nobody bothered to say, you know, hey, orange ass hat, you should really have a one time pin on that fucker. No one bothered. Maybe he's got it on there now. I don't know third times a charm? third time? i keep getting told that well you can't get security wrong the first time otherwise there's no point to the security. well i guess the white house does not agree with that. you trust these people? i mean i i'm i'm fairly certain biden doesn't have 2fa on his account either. But I don't know anybody, how anyone security minded could vote for somebody. And, and, and you think this isn't that big of a deal. No, look at what happened. Hundreds of thousands of dollars exchange hands. People got scammed and blah, blah, blah with the last part of the Twitter hack. People get hurt when this happened. It matters. There's a reason that we that security researchers, cybersecurity experts implement things like two-factor authentication options. There's a reason that UV keys exist, you understand, because your life, your livelihood can be on the line. I would not vote for somebody who does not understand these things. I wouldn't vote, of course, in the first place, because I know these people are idiots and they have no business telling me how I should live my life, especially considering they can't even lock down their own Twitter account, which takes a matter of minutes. I will point to this story as should you. Anytime you're talking to somebody and they say, well, they have to do it for matters of national security, they clearly cannot understand the concept of security in itself, national or otherwise. They can't secure themselves. For fuck's sake, does this guy even dress himself? Does he need somebody to make sure his pants get zipped back up every morning? Because that's about as easy as it is to set up two FA, even if it's just SMS. And this guy is legislating uh, about what we should do <laughs> about the pandemic. <laughs> Folks, the stuff isn't hard. It's not like you have to be a cybersecurity expert expert anymore, you know, to, to do a, 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 you know proper security on an account. You don't have to be. OK, in fact, fuck, you would think when you're the leader of the free world, you'd have people that would do it for you. okay. You're an older person. Go ask little Johnny, go ask your grandson. I guarantee you he's, he's probably put two FA on his Nintendo account. And I'm sure he can help you get it on your Twitter account. If you don't have it already, maybe little Johnny should be running the country. You know, I might actually go out to the polls for that. I could just keep screaming and hollering into the microphone, you know, for the next, I don't know how much longer do we have here for the next 15 minutes or so, but why? I mean, does the two factor authentication ultimately matter if there's a God mode on Twitter? No, but like we've been saying this whole episode, do you still go through the, you know, do you still do your level best to make it hard on, you know, to make it difficult for an attacker to get access to your shit? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this reminds me so much of like when Jeff Bezos, we found out that, you know, the leaked pictures of him and uh, him and Lauren there, that uh, 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 it it was from a, what's like that? The hack was, was enacted, you know, via WhatsApp in some way. And I'm like, wait, you're the richest guy on the fucking planet. And you're using WhatsApp. You're using that fucking nightmare. There's a lot you can take away from this. Because it makes it so hard to believe, you know, you got so many people that are, Oh, Oh, they're, you know, like that. These, these people above us, you know, be it, you know, and, and I mean, from a corporate standpoint, you know, both in, in corporations and in governments that they are, uh, you know, they're always scheming and planning behind the scenes and, you know, they're pulling the strings and blah, blah, blah. I, I just, I, I, I can't believe it. I can't believe, I mean, they may want to think that they're scheming, but I can't believe that they're successful when they can't even do something like this. This is 101, Internet 101 in the 21st century. And I'm supposed to believe that somehow these people are like, you know, I don't know, putting tracking devices and vaccines and doing all this other horseshit. Give me a break. I think Terry Gilliam got it right in Brazil. It's just that the system had become so complex, no one understood it anymore. And they keep making boogeymen. To try and make you believe that you still need the system, even though the system is just like toppling on top of itself. So, I guess I can answer at least that. How do you? What do? What do we do about this? You learn. You take action. And you be a good renegade air conditioner repairman. I'll be back with more sovereignty. Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But if you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay, I implore you to help the show out by donating. Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made this show go round and round. You can go to SovereignTech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the Cash app at Cash.app and use the money tag Sovereign Tech. So many ways to help out the show, and I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future. Now, let's get back to the show.
1: Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here is your host Brian Sovereign
0: time for a little gaming grid because uh we gotta calm the fuck down
1: <laughs> look at the
0: size of my pants for Christ's sake sorry that's a that's an old joke okay so uh we'll talk a little video games i i wish it was all sunshine and rainbows here um but like life it is not and uh Well, actually, you know, some disappointing news that I learned, um, night dive studios who actually, they, they do some really great work as far as, you know, bringing a lot of classic games to modern consoles and even to PC. Um, they were planning on releasing, uh, the original blade runner game, which finally GOG did put out and, and Satan bless them for that. That's wonderful. Um, but they're going to do an enhanced edition of that. And I was really, really excited uh, for this, um, they have, it's been indefinitely delayed and apparently it is not, has nothing to do with COVID-19. It is just that there are elements missing to make it happen, um, from the code, which has been the challenge for GOG to even bring the original version to life again as well. Um, and it all has to, I mean, like all problems in gaming, they all stem from electronic arts, of course. (laughs) Uh, but, When they, when, when EA, I think when they bought out Westwood, right. When they bought out Westwood and they moved everything from Westwood to EA's, whatever main offices at the time, there was just a lot of stuff lost in the shuffle. And that included a lot of the original code for Blade Runner. That's my understanding of what happened. Regardless, um, Night Dive says they are running into massive challenges. And so it is delayed until they can get over that. And the challenges are related to, you know, original aspects of the code that they've had to try and reverse engineer uh, probably to bring it to, you know, to upscale it and who knows, do what else with it. Um, so that's really disappointing. That's not like the news I want to hear. And I was really hopeful that by, you know, end of year, would you say, you know, in December that there would have been a nice little, uh, a little calendar miracle and we'd end up having a blade runner enhanced edition. Not that it exactly matters because I can still, you know, rock it on, uh, on varying PCs, um, through GOG. Uh, But well, anyway, it's a little disappointing. So I did want to get in uh, a climax here actually to review um, the book that i had mentioned. I think it was last time Ellen was on, uh, I talked about the immortality key. Uh, I'm not going to get into that here because that's something that I I really want to dedicate actually a lot of the show to, because there's a big, big conversation to have around it. Um, I mean, I will say just on the onset that, it's very good but then in many ways it's it's lacking um and i think that there are some conclusions that little off base but overall i thought it, i mean it's definitely a worthy read for anybody um but i will we'll, we need to deep dive on that book here in the near future as well um but i the reason i'm not getting into that also is because at the top of the show i said hey we got to talk about the quest 2 um, and of course we are talking about none other than the, none other than the Oculus quest 2. Now to understand, uh, I guess we'll, we'll backtrack a little bit and I'm, I am going to leave you with something good at the end here, not to do with the Oculus quest, but regardless, um, the original Oculus quest when, and that was being developed and it was something I was very pro. I was like very, very on board with that. Uh, very supportive, uh, John Carmack, was still with Oculus, which was still, which also at the time was owned by Facebook has been for most of its life cycle. But, uh, but John Carmack was still there at that time. Um, he was his goal, according to him, was that he saw, he saw the Oculus quest competition. He felt like PlayStation and Xbox were generations behind. He felt that the real competition that Oculus quest has, which he considered the console of the future he thought his real competition was the Nintendo switch, which I thought was very, very interesting. Um, And I agreed with, with the sentiment Uh, the Oculus quest has ultimately been discontinued along with the Oculus go. I mean, I guess it's still kind of supported, but um, I mean, it wasn't that much earlier into this year that the Oculus quest one, the first model was basically the hottest item on eBay. I mean, selling for, you know, well above ticket price uh, or retail price. And it's amazing how quickly that just nosedived as soon as the quest Two, you know, was announced. And I think if people haven't already got their hands on some, I know that most places have it in stock end of, uh, you know, end of October, like October 30th. So this week is, it is something that should be available if you can get your hands on it, but the Oculus quest Two, uh, to talk about it. I mean, it has, you know, tech specs, we can compare it to the original it is i mean probably the most important feature if you want to call it a feature is that it is $100 less than the original quest so it's 299 compared to 399 uh for you know the opening models that that's a winning proposition um i think that when you get below $300 and this is something nintendo has known for a very long time now when you get below $300 you enter a category in gaming where you can be owned as a second system. So where basically you can be off to the side and of interest to people. And then maybe you can either continue to build your legacy or you could even start to dominate at that lower price point. So that's a magic number to, in many ways to get to sub 200 is really magical as well, but the Oculus go, I guess just for most people, the experiences weren't that compelling when that was, you know, a sub $200 headset. Uh, resolutions up, you know, to 1832 by 1920 compared to 1440 by 1600. Um, it has a fast switch led that's supposed to help out with, well, varying ways that you experience VR, you know, latency, things like this. Um, there is a refresh rate support coming for 90 Hertz as compared to 72 Hertz. I mean, Ram six gig over four, uh, the battery life is basically the same two to three hours. Uh, the weight, it actually weighs a lot less than the original Quest uh, by about 70 grams. That's, you you know the difference when you're strapping one of these things on as far as that goes. But otherwise, in many ways, it's still the same old Oculus Quest other than all of those, you know, I mean, the improved graphics, uh, you know, the higher resolution, which will certainly help a better screen, you know, and, and, and so on. Um, there are problems here, though. And actually, I mean, we could talk about an issue with the entire system. Um, part of the, maybe the biggest problem is that now, and this is where, because again, I was supportive of the Oculus go, uh, this is where I, I would have jumped off. Um, when I had the Oculus go, you're like, well, but Brian, you said you don't have a Facebook account. Why, how are you on the Oculus go? Well, guess what? At the time you only had to have an Oculus account. You didn't have to have a Facebook account and I would not attach um, my Facebook account to that I did temporarily. And you could say, well, it's all the same thing, but you know, for reasons of testing, I did temporarily uh, link my Instagram account to my Oculus go years ago. Um, but that was, you know, to test all of this out and everything. And and that was actually a, an interesting experience in its own way. Um, you can find my Oculus uh, go review, which again, I was very, very positive about, um, you know, in the past or in, in, I don't know, it was a couple of, whenever it first came out, I, I got my hands on it pretty early, Anyway, um, so with the Oculus quest two, you are now required to have a Facebook account. And in my opinion, that's an instant no buy like that. That that's just, no, I'm, I'm not going to have, because that, that, that's tacitly stating there is no separation between your quest data and you know, the data that, that Facebook directly gets, I mean, they would get it anyway. Sure. But there's just, there's no degrees of separation here at all where you can make varying claims. And now another thing that, and, and apparently there was a retraction on this by, uh, by Oculus or by Facebook, we might as well say, uh, there, apparently if you had multiple, um, Oculus devices, not even just the quest Two, but if you had multiple Oculus devices And if you logged into all of them with the same login, your Facebook account would get banned. Um, now Facebook is saying, no, you don't get banned, but I don't know, I guess there's a warning or something like that. And I get it. Just like one of the reasons that they want you to use a Facebook account, um, aside from data collection, obviously is because that, well, a, it helps with cheating. Um, you know, people logging into multiple devices or whatever in, in a game. I mean, you, you've got to understand how big of a problem. And it's one of the reasons I really don't like doing online gaming today is because cheating. Well, I'm not saying, you know, I mean, whatever you can make happen in a game, go ahead and make it happen. But the fact that so many people, you know, do whatever they do to allow for a game to do things that it's not intended and allow them to dominate an online multiplayer I have no interest in being a part of that. I think that this, that this reasoning for not allowing a Facebook account to log into multiple Oculi, if we want to call them that, uh, is probably has something to do with that. Um, there's also, I think pretty clearly the incentive of much like Nintendo stated, of course they do it without dirty tricks, much like Nintendo stated where we want a switch, not a switch in Nintendo switch in every home, but a Nintendo switch in every pair of hands, meaning that like, you know, if, if you're in a household with, uh, you know, five people, all five people have their own Nintendo switch. That's part of the reason they came out with the switch Lite, and not that everybody is sharing one console. Like that's what Nintendo wanted to get to. Um, and I think Oculus probably, or, you know, Facebook really wants Oculus to go in the same direction, uh, to allow for that dominance and to compete with, if, you know, the people under who, who worked with John Carmack, even though he's not with Oculus anymore, uh, I'm sure they share the vision that they need to take on the switch. Well, you're going to have to take on the switch's numbers and the switch's ability to, uh, or, or, you know, the reality that it's they you have multiple switches in one home that's coming true. Like, I mean, Nintendo's winning that, you know, that, that, that deal that they want. Uh, so they've got to everybody, they, you know, for them to incentivize that every single person owns an Oculus, not that there's just one in the home. Sure. That's what they want. Now they do allow for multiple, uh, logins on one device, meaning that while they don't allow you to use one login for multiple devices, the opposite is they do allow for meaning that you can have multiple family members log into, Uh, use their own accounts to have, you know, multi-account login on one Oculus Quest. Um, So all of that aside, I mean, again, needing the Facebook login, and you can make a dummy account, sure, but you know how much of a pain in the ass that is these days since Facebook wants to verify fucking everything. Um, I I just, again, I think that's a no-go. And also the fact that John Carmack's not there anymore, that's when I left you know, being interested in Oculus in the first place. And I had said that, and I kept to my word, but the other part to this, that for me really makes it kind of pointless. Now I've played games in VR. Um, and some of those experiences are really cool. Some not so much. There's nothing really that there, there isn't that great interactive, um, experience yet. That makes me feel like whatever I am experiencing in VR, I have to experience in VR because it's just not good enough uh, on a two dimensional screen. I have not come across that yet. And I've seen some great things. I mean, you know, like having the giant screen, you know, like pretending you're in a movie theater and all that that stuff's really, really cool. But there's nothing where, where I've experienced where it's like, Oh no, I want to be in VR for this. You know, I have to be in VR to experience this. That killer app, as it were, um, in my opinion, has yet to come to fruition. So there's that. And to add insult to injury, um, two other things that really stand against the Oculus Quest, or any of its series, 2 one or two or three or four that's coming down the line. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest reasons I wanted an original Oculus Quest was to play Vader Immortal uh, the star Wars game, which at the time was an exclusive that is no longer exclusive (laughs) and they do have another star Wars quote unquote exclusive coming, but it's probably just a matter of time before it comes out on PlayStation VR. So if you don't have any exclusive games whatsoever, I don't think you can actually dominate in the space. And so that's, that's kind of a problem in and of itself. Um, And really if, you know, because the switch is already teasing VR and AR experiences like Mario Kart live and so on, you know, I, I'm more than willing, as long as, you know, some of these games that are going to have like these really great stories or stories connected to a larger universe, a larger franchise. Um, if I can just wait for the switch to have the VR experience, I'll just wait for the console I already own to have it. I can be that kind of patient. And I can also be that kind of patient because here's the other thing, because none of these experiences, in my opinion, really, I mean, you could say that the gameplay mechanic requires it, but then is it that compelling of a game, right? That's the debate. But any of these experiences that even if they were exclusive to the Oculus Quest, guess what? Vader Immortal, I don't have to play it. I can go on YouTube and I can watch somebody like, you know, somebody, uh, somebody else play it. And not only just watch them and, and without commentary, by the way, cause I want the story. Fuck. Uh, but I can, uh, you know, they'll, they'll splice it and turn it into like a, a little star Wars movie that goes about an hour and 40 or so. So even if I just want to get these great stories, you know, these interactive stories, I can get them on a 2d screen and that's good enough for me. And I think actually for a lot of people that would frankly be good enough. Um, Because part of, you know, gaming is the social experience, right? Not the online social experience, but the meat space, the real world social experience of swapping stories, you know, swapping adventures with your buddies and saying, oh yeah, oh, I did this. I beat it in this many seconds or blah, 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 you know, however that works. And for a lot of people, if they can just watch the game, they can understand what the other person's saying about the game that they played and they can relate and they have a common framework and you know, the, the, the social connection, which is what it's all really about at the end of the day. Um, and the sharing of stories can happen without actually having a quest too. So it just becomes a redundant, pointless experience and it's still not as powerful enough of a VR experience overall, in my opinion. Um, I mean, I don't know if steam you know, with the vive and so on is going to, you know, take that to the next level at some point. I don't know if Oculus with, you know, some future rift model or something re- powered by, you know, with some real horsepower uh, is going to do that. But again, um, you, you're running, I mean, the Oculus quest two did a good job in dropping the price, but there's still a barrier to entry. And not only that, there are no exclusives. And even then, a lot of it, none of it requires you to be there to really experience it. You can, it is just good enough, more than good enough, even to just watch, you know, a VR game on YouTube, frankly. And that, you know, that, that should call bullshit on the whole thing. Um, so no excitement here, uh, uh, you know, at all. Now I said that I wanted, and by the way, do go watch, uh, Vader Immortal. Go, go watch a, like a movie version video on, on YouTube. It, it's dynamite. I'll give it that. Okay. I mean, I expected nothing less from David Goyer, tremendous writer, but, um, that said, I, I did say I'd end off with something good. So age of empires three definitive edition finally came out. I have tested it. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> that, that game is just as good now as a, in fact, in many ways, even better. Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to get into a full review cause I'm not that deep into the game yet, But, man, have I been pleased with what I experienced so far. Uh, Very, very impressive. Very good looking. Very rich experience once again. Um, I mean, they've added a lot to this. So that's something to look out for as well. Anyway, that is it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. We will wrap it up here. Uh, Of course, if you want to help out with the show, frequent our sponsors, or you can donate directly to the show, you just head over to SovereignTech.com and you'll find the Donate tab and hit it up. And I'm so honored by so many that have listened means the world to me so anyway that is it for this episode of sovereign tech Uh, another one to come out shortly and i've got a a few surprises coming up so i will see all of you on the other side
1: thank you for listening to sovereign tech and osiris one production now go out there and make some trouble
0: No zoonoids were harmed in the making of this podcast.